Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic interventions. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. On this episode of the LOL Pod, I am joined by my guest, Cole and Perry, and we talk about destigmatizing death, dying, and grieving. Let's jump in. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Super excited today to have a conversation with my guest. She's a thanatologist and the founder of the School of American Anthropology, Cole and Perry. Hi, Cole. Hi, LaShonda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to hang out a little bit. I am super excited as well. And so I'm going to start our time by asking you, like I ask all of my guests, what is your labor of love? That is a great question. And um, I would say my labor of love is that I work with death all day, every day. (laughs) I love it. I love how simple it is. (laughs) And I'm sure we're going to talk about the many ways that that manifests. But I think what's very interesting about it too is death is one of those things that there's not a single person that you will talk to who will like say death is not a part of life. But it is also one of the topics that so few people are willing to think about, talk about, and engage in active uh, discussion and learning about because there's so much fear kind of associated with this concept of death. And so I really hope our conversation today, I know it's going to enlighten me in a whole lot of ways. And I, I have so much optimism that uh, my listeners are going to come away with um, a slightly different perspective of, yes. of death. And I think that's going to be important. So let's start with just kind of, so where is this rooted for you? Yes. So I am a thanatologist and thanatology is the study of death and dying. If I was going to define that in the most simple way possible. Um, and thanatology is, there's a lot of different ways to be a thanatologist. Um, I am an independent thanatologist, which means that I create my own work essentially and fund it myself through myself. I do not work at another institution. Um, I um, am and independent. So that makes me a little bit different. And then I'm also an American thanatologist. And I always add that as a quali- as a qualifier because perspectives around death and dying are different in the United States. I mean, let's just talk about, there's two things that are popping into my mind right now that kind of might help explain the difference between an American relationship to death and dying versus not. So in the United States, we have an issue with gun violence, right? And just think about kids and how often they probably hear of violence around guns and death by guns in the United States. And is that the same outside the US? No, it is not. Uh Another thing um, in the United States, uh, one of the most popular genres of like podcasts and just entertainment is true crime. It's consuming as entertainment stories of other people's trauma. That's really big in the U.S. And the trend's not exactly the same outside the U.S. So in the U.S., we have this really interesting thing where we consume death and dying and, and as entertainment, and it's all over the news. But then we turn around and say that, oh, but we're actually very death avoidant. We don't, we're not really talking about it. We just kind of rubberneck it. We stare at it and we just can't look away, but we don't do anything really beyond that. Um, And so that, for me, that's really interesting to me as an American thanatologist. And I also recognize that when you grow up in the United States, you can't separate yourself from our own culture in the United States around death and dying. Um, And that's just, that's part of us. And so when I say I'm an American thanatologist, that's what I mean. So So where did your interest in thanatology come from? Was this something you you recognized as a young child or did it kind of emerge as you were growing up? 
That's a good question. And I'll tell you that at no point when I was growing up, did I want to work with death and dying? I wanted to like be a singer and wear costumes. And I thought it would be cool to um, be a person that actually made sequins. <laughs> like someone like that is sparkly and glittery. And so I, growing up, I always thought I would be not <laughs> involved with death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, although as I've gotten older, I've had adults adults when I was a kid who are still in my life now that I'm an adult tell me that when I was a kid I apparently was very um okay with death and dying and anytime one of my friends would lose a pet or something I was very like let's talk about it just naturally so as I got older moved through college and all that kind of stuff um death just continually found and followed me I did not declare that I'm going to work with death and dying it kept following me and in a lot of different ways and then actually in my 20s I kind of in my early 20s got really freaked out so I was like I don't want to work with death and dying that's like very intense and heavy like I don't think I I don't want to do that the rest of my life and I very actively pursued not like a different career only to end up running right back into it kind of by accident and then that was the point where I realized my work with death and dying is likely a vocation Uh, a vocation is something that um, depending on your system of belief that you grew up in and around whether it was religious or cultural sometimes some people have a belief that you can have a job or a career that you are meant to do and the question is in your life will you answer that call or will you not and you have a choice And um, that was a period of reckoning for me. And I um, made the choice to see it through and see where I'm going to end up. (laughs) And now I'm here. (laughs) So that's so interesting. And I love the way you frame kind of, will we answer the call? You know, and that being a belief for some people. I know I will say that um, I never thought I would be a therapist but there are people in my life now who look at me with their head cocked to the side, like, really? I did. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and my partner will say to me sometimes, I mean, you've always been a therapist. Aren't you glad you get paid for it now? So it yeah. is that kind of thing that we're drawn to based on life experience, based on who we are and our essence. And I think that's awesome. So I know that I am really looking forward to hearing like, what does a thanatologist do and what does that mean and what's that path like so can you tell us a little bit and I, I'm aware that it can take on many different forms and look very differently but for you what does your work encompass yes so um in my life the things that I'm actively working on in my role as a thanatologist look like this. The first is that um, I'm the founder of the School of American Thanatology, which is uh, an online institution where you can learn about death and dying um, from me and through my instructors. And uh, I have students from 19 countries um, uh, across 10 time zones. So uh, that's very, very exciting to me. So it's the School of American Thanatology because I'm an American thanatologist and I founded it and that influence is there but we are, we are global. Um, the other ask a question about that, that yeah, before sure. you even go forward is so is a person who is coming to the school of American thanatology, learning about death and dying, just because um, they're interested in learning more for their own life, or are they building capacity to do something specific or professional with that knowledge? Okay, that's a great question. And for me, watching the people that find the school and enroll, like, and getting to learn about them, it's both. I have people who they're expecting a death in their lives, or they themselves have received some kind of diagnosis, maybe that in 20 or 30 years, they're likely to deal with a degenerative condition or something, but they're not right now. Like they just, you know, a, a personal loss experience is anticipated or has happened. Um, so they want to enroll to kind of learn more about what is there, what is studying death and dying and how can it help me personally? Then there's professionals. I have had, and it blows my mind, the number of professionals that have enrolled um, for different reasons. So I've had 
physicians who are board certified, who literally run hospitals in other countries, enroll and take a class about death and dying. I've since learned that in the United States, I think the total number of hours of education on average that a graduating physician receives in the U.S. is 14 total hours about death and dying. Yet every single human will die. So how are we only having 14 hours total education uh-huh. about this? So uh, physicians, a lot of therapists um, enroll. I have social workers. I have people who run retail shops, people who run, I've had pastry chefs and bakers. And the reality is, if you think about it, like people who work in bakeries, they deal with death because they make these cakes that people pick up to serve at funerals. You know what I mean? Like that, that it's helped me realize I guess how many good people there are in the world. Cause you've got people who, who are like, I run a store selling clothes and I'm in this course because I've had a bunch of people come in that need a dress for a funeral or something. And like, I just want to be, know how to talk to them better. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's kind of a mix of people, but I mean, ultimately people are, I think are enrolling because we all want to know how we can show up better for ourselves and others. Awesome. And do these courses um, have any, like, what's the philosophy, if you will, behind that? You know, as I think about myself growing up in a Protestant Christian, Black Protestant Christian environment, death meant something that I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate growing up. But where I recognize how pervasive culture is, is when you see a meme. For me, memes are really just these magnets to elicit and draw out of you, like connected culture that you recognize some people get and some people don't. And and what that means for um, a funeral, a repast, learning that like there are some cultures where the the family hour is not right before the funeral blew my mind because in my mind this this is this is what death looks like this is the process you're going to take that family a bunch of food that they're not going to be able to consume it's going to be a lot of chicken um and you're going to be heavily around them you're going to show up and then the second the casket is in the ground you're going to go on with your life yeah and and they're going to be alone so it has meant things that i can now work that I couldn't before, but I'm just interested in, so as you're creating, as you have this tool and people are taking it, is there a particular philosophy or are you just kind of looking at a lot of culture and philosophy? Okay. That's a great question. And I I love talking about this. So um, something I guess that makes probably the school of American thanatology different than other places to get thanatological education. And I'm I'm certified multiple times in thanatology because I really value learning from as many different people as possible. Like to me, it's not like one and done to me. It's like, you can always be learning from others. And even if you have a negative experience, you're still learning from that. The question is, do you only value things that make you feel good? Or do you find a way to value the things that sometimes are really difficult, but like, maybe you really learned a lot from that, (laughs) you know? Um, And that's that's okay. Mm -hmm. You can, you can still like have a boundary and be like, I'm not going to learn from this person again, but you can allow yourself to positively benefit from the learning from a negative experience even. Anyway, so in terms of, so the School of American Thanatology, we have three things we teach, like big subject areas, thanatology, death work, which is like the application of knowledge about death and dying to actual real life experiences, and then thanabotany, which is where plants intersect with death. So in terms of death work, um, the thing that makes me different, I would say, or the school is that I believe that death work is activism. And at death, all of the systems that happen in life show up at death. Everything from generational trauma within your family, that's showing up at the funeral. That's an invited guest as well, all the way out to systems of oppression and classism and capitalism that shows up at death. 
And in the courses, the idea is that here's definitions and here's facts about death and dying and grief and loss and bereavement. But how does this make sense for you in your family background, your traditions, your death and dying experiences? Um, how can you meet people where they are when you haven't done the work yourself? Well, Those kinds of questions. That's a whole message and that crosses so many fields. I love that. So, okay, I have so many. I love this. <laughs> before we continue to go down that road, I do, um, I interrupted you before you could finish telling us the various ways that thanatology shows up in your work. So one is the School of American yep. Thanatology that you founded that has these kind of three umbrella pillars of knowledge that you that you how else does uh this show up in your work um so i'm also involved with active research on stuff that i've developed in my work as a thanatologist probably my most well-known contribution to the field is the term shadow loss so shadow loss is a term that um we can claim for ourselves to take ownership of the loss experiences we've had where there may not have been a dead body. So for example, you could have two people that each have a divorce. One person is like, it was fine. It was the best thing that ever happened. It was difficult, but it wasn't like a shadow loss. Whereas you may have someone else who gets a divorce and it was like a death, like th their life died. And they're like, my gosh, my divorce was a shadow loss. I grieved. There, I lost something. It was a death, literally. So that is a word that I coined years ago. I've had a TED talk about it, and now I'm actively working on um, research. So where you do studies and you have people use the term, and then you can measure the outcomes. And we're trying to measure and understand exactly what the positive benefits are. Um, one of the areas we're particularly interested in is self-compassion. Does having the term shadow loss help you become more self-compassionate to yourself, offer yourself more compassion? Um, and early indications are that yes. So that's another area. Um, and then I also do a lot of public facing speaking and teaching and talking about this. Um, for some reason, I'm pretty darn comfortable talking about death and dying and um, I'm good in like speaking. I'm not afraid to get up in front of an audience. And so that's something that I try really hard to do um, because we need to make it normal to like have conversations about death and dying. And, you know, does like we don't have to whisper when we say death, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like we don't have to whisper. I, I appreciate that so much. Um, I also appreciate shadow loss. Um, may I use that? Yes, please do. Please I, give it to people. Teach it. I, I I talk about shadow loss, though I do not have those words all the time. Constantly helping people understand that all change equals loss in some way. And yes. even change that is beneficial, that we can um, go like, oh, this is going to be helpful. And all of that, it still brings with it a component of loss and that, that requires grieving. I like to equate grieving with pooping. Everyone mm -hmm. knows that other people poop. There, I know, there's yes. just not a person, you know, who I think is above a certain age who doesn't have an awareness that they poop and that everyone else poops. They don't like look at someone in public transportation and go like, ah, I don't know if that person poops. Nope, there is a, there is an awareness that everyone does it yes. yet. Right? So it's like, oh my God. and then we find these creative ways to talk about it that doesn't actually just, you know, talk about it. How even though everyone does it, we get very private with it. We don't invite people into the process. It's messy. It can be not pleasant and stinky, but it is required for our life. And so yes. when we talk about grieving, it's not that different than pooping. No, and we, totally we stigmatize agree. both because they're both necessary for us yes. to have a quality of life that allows us to live in the present. And so I really appreciate the term shadow loss and your permission to now have 
a concrete word to put or two words to put with this concept that I find myself talking about often. I don't really care what a person's presenting issue is when they come to me in therapy. It doesn't matter. They can have words like anxiety, depression, or they can just like something feels off. But at some point in our relationship, we are going back to something they have not grieved. And so I really appreciate, you know, that your contribution um, to the field and to the world with shadow laws, but just being able to out loud have conversations about death. I, again, I don't think anyone looks at a person and goes, I don't know if that person's going to die. Yeah. I don't know. There is some awareness that we have that everybody's going to do it, but yet and still we're not talking about it. So I appreciate it. Yes, exactly. So like as an example, so um, I was assaulted in 2014. Obviously that was a trauma. Um, and that was, a, that was a shadow loss. That was a huge shadow loss in my life. Like there was a line in the sand, like before the assault and then everything, you know, after the assault, but with time, what happens after you basically learn how to be in a relationship with that shadow loss? Cause that's kind of the hard part is like, for me, it was like coming to terms with the fact that I was never not going to be assaulted again. <laughs> like I was like permanently, like now I'm a statistic, like, do you know what I mean? And like, I can't ever undo that Mm -hmm. so once you kind of I think accept that then you can find or most people do find their shadow light the shadow light comes after a shadow loss it's when you one day you wake up and you look back and you're like man if I had to choose that again as awful as it was I think I would because it made me become a much better version of myself it eliminated people from my life that really didn't have my back and like why why would I want to go back to have them there like you know what I mean and that's when you find your shadow light. And I feel like I'm in my shadow light all these years later from the shadow loss of my assault. But what I think is so helpful about these terms is that they're not clinical. It's not like, okay, your, your grief is disenfranchised. That's mm-hmm. not something we use in conversation, mm-hmm. but being able to talk with a friend and be like, oh man, this thing that happened, this was totally a shadow loss. Um, that allows us to have more agency in our own lives and allows us to claim and define our experiences for ourselves. And I think that's incredibly important and it makes it easier to talk about because like, for example, pooping, people don't like to say the word poop, right? So people don't like to say my grief was disenfranchised, but it's a way easier for us to say, oh my gosh, my divorce was a shadow loss. And this is why language is so critically important and why language needs to continue to grow and evolve. We need terms to meet society where it is now. And that's what I think shadow loss is. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And as you're talking, you know, I think about 2020 and the pandemic as a shadow loss. Shadow loss, 100%. How with trauma, with shadow loss, with big, significant line in the sand, you know, pre and post things, think 9-11. We talk about it in that way. There was pre-9-11, then there was post-9-11. And when we have things like this, which is so interesting to me as human nature, which I think is general human nature, but there's also a very westernized and American component to this, uh, we gotta get back. And how in the shadow loss, right? In In the midst of it, and as we're coming through it, but not quite out of it, there is definitely an idealized perception of what was. I've seen this at every single funeral I've ever gone to. It is the person who has died stops being a traditional person at their funeral and they become only the best parts of who they were, which is not realistic first of all but it also spits in the face of all those who have been impacted in any way positive negative or indifferent by the person who died yeah and, and it makes it difficult for people who are still living to recognize and have a full lived experience themselves because they're com- 
combating this image of a person who now is not a full human with faults and deficits and who made mistakes. Um, and now that makes it very challenging. And so one example that I can think of very specifically at the beginning of 2020 when Kobe Bryant died. And one of the first things I thought about was the young lady who accused him of sexual assault and how I don't want, like there is a full range of reality that exists that we lose in death. And that is something. So when you talk about shadow light, I think about the capacity for shadow light that we have as a culture, as a community, as a world coming out virus and the, um, the pandemic, but this idealized version of what was, though, if we just sit for 10 seconds and remember the inequities and the, the, the oppression and the poverty yeah. and all of these things, it's kind of like, come on, y'all. We have- well, yeah, because it's like, why do you want to go back to what got us here? I don't want to go back to what got us here. No, no, no. We need to bury it, have the funeral and consider what could be and focus on going forward rather than going back to where we were. Um, yeah, that's, and I think a lot of people, cause now the vaccine is out there. I'm fully vaccinated now are realizing like now I think people are really going to start to have to face what all has changed yeah. now that the vaccines out there. Like, um, a couple, let's see, some friends invited my husband and I out, um, over the weekend and we were like, no, we're fully vaccinated. There's no reason why we couldn't, but no, we just aren't, something's changed. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know. And I think there's a lot of people are going to be realizing what has been lost and there's going to be a lot of reckoning with that shadow loss eventually we'll find our shadow light but um there's a lot of grief right now a lot of grief a lot of active grief across the board yeah absolutely as you were talking something that emerged for me and I would love to have a dialogue about it is talking to children about mm -hmm. loss and grief um I think it is something that general we um don't do good job of. So mm -hmm. I would love to hear, you know, from your perspective and expertise. Yeah, let's just talk about that. Yeah, so I'm actually really passionate about kids and loss because number one, I find that if you can talk to kids comfortably about death and dying, you got the adults covered. You know what I mean? Like, so I just, yeah. Now, um, one of the things that I do that perhaps is really helpful. So first of all, it's really normal for kids at some point to go through, whether it's because of a loss or they just see it on TV or something where they get afraid. Like, are you going to die, mom? You going to die? Am I going to die? You know, like that question comes and that's normal. And that's actually a sign that your child is growing up and they're becoming more self-aware. And like, that's, like, wow, yay, <laughs> you got them to this point. Um, one of the things that I think can be really helpful, and this is for any parent, you know your child best, but is to go on um, like a walk around your neighborhood and looking for dead things. Oh, look at this flower in that flower pot. All of them are alive, but look, there's, there's a dead one. And then you're walking down the street and just pointing at all of the dead stuff. It's all around us. The, one of the issues is that with children, a lot of times people tend to treat death as like a thing that only happens very rarely, suddenly, and without warning. And so if we can show that dying is like, it's so basic, it's so everywhere all the time, like, you know, everything dies, it's very normal, natural, you know, but, but we're not going to die, but, you know, it's also very normal. That can really help cut down the fear because for a lot of kids, death is like this thing that happened to grandpa one time and they never got to ask questions, but it was just bad and we never saw grandpa again. That's where issues come from, can, can definitely come from when we forget that death is the 
literal end point of the life cycle for everything. I mean, office chairs, at some point, the office chair I'm sitting in is going to die. It will be at the end of its life and I'll have to get a new one, right? Um, and we just, in the US, tend to frame death as like the exception rather than the norm. I mean, relationships die. Like, you know, friendships die. Marriages die. It's not abnormal. So that's kind of my general... I guess thing on that um, is it we need to be less precious about it. Mm -hmm. I like that less precious. You know what's interesting? Um, I do think that I remember um, years ago, a couple of years ago, um, when my mother-in-law died, and I remember being in the home with probably about seven, eight adults. We're all crying. Having whatever experience we had when she was at home. And I remember looking at my daughter's faces, who were um, two. Okay. And I, re I remember specifically seeing a moment where I saw them recognize something was happening. Like they were looking around and and they didn't ask questions in the moment. Like there was something very intuitive that they, they, they met the somber mood. And they were just taking it in. They were looking around. I remember one of my daughters was skeptical from the beginning. She would stand outside of grandma's door. And while one of them was kind of like, oh, what's going on? And, and was the, the explanation, oh, she's just sleeping. My other mm -hmm. just kind of like, she didn't say anything, but I could just tell she was like, that's not what's happening. Yeah, and it's so interesting that without conversation about it, you leave a child's mind to fill in the gaps. Yes, fill in those gaps with whatever information they have, you know. And so I think that's important. I also think it's it's important to say that raising three children who are growing up in black bodies, death is not just something that happened to grandma in old age. It's something that happened to sixteen-year-old Makaya weeks ago it's something that happened very publicly to George Floyd and and Tamir Rice who my son is almost the age he was right so it's it's also understanding that from a, a cultural perspective death means something different or has the capacity to mean something different for my children if I'm going to be honest with them about what's happening in the world and the impact of having black and brown bodies um, and I think that there isn't a lot of, and it, if it is, I haven't seen it, it's not very popular, a lot of guidance or suggestions around how do we talk about death when we are in a world, particularly here in the U.S., where it's not about sickness and age, which growing up, only old people died. Yep. And so that's what happened. To now old kids get shot. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different way. And I'm not saying this because I have the answers. I'm saying let's dialogue because, you yeah. know, you used to could just say, oh, she was sick. I remember my daughter asked me um, within the last couple of days, her question was, um, mommy is, oh, no, what did she say? Is grandmommy's mommy dead? And it's like, yes, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, how? And then being able to, answer those questions but I still know that for her and even for my son it still feels very much associated with old people die and sick people die but yeah. still working with how do I begin to have these very important conversations about the realities of the world uh, that we grow up in or that they're yes. in Yeah. Well, and the other thing too, like I think back to my childhood growing up in Cincinnati, I went to a, like a, like a small private Catholic school for like first through eighth grade. And now with my lens as, you know, an adult, I think about my classmates who are black and brown in a mostly white school. Another risk factor, another like issue is that the white kids didn't know that the black and brown kids 
just by existing at more risk for their own lives. I didn't become aware of this in first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I really, I was in high school when the race riots happened in Cincinnati. Was that like 2001? Um, that was, I remember when I was like, that was when I realized because of my privilege, right? And that's another thing that I think about with kids in particular is like, those with privilege don't, we don't, we don't become aware of our privilege at the same age, you know? And that increases risk and it reduces the chance of uh, other people being able to be supported and protected because just, you know, cause that's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But what do you do until you see it? You know, it, 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 it creates more vulnerability. And I don't have the answer to that, but that, that's something that I think about particularly in school environments. Um, and then I'm just like, what kind of education do first graders, second graders, third graders receive about race in the United States? Really? I don't know. I don't have kids, so I don't actually know, but it's like, uh, my sense is that it's not really happening, right. you know, or definitely, you know. Well, it's the same conversation we're having about death, right? If we don't talk about it, then it doesn't exist. We, about grief, yes. about all of these different things. So yeah, it's, as long as we're not talking about it, it doesn't exist. And we know that that is false. I love when you said you need to be less precious. It, was it precious? Yeah. 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 Precious. And this idea, um, what it reminded me of is um, when a baby is born, if they are born, um, if there's an assisted birth, mm-hmm. um, the person who deals in birth doesn't necessarily handle that newborn baby delicately and preciously. Not because yes. it's not precious yeah. in, in its essence, but because that person understands that like this baby ain't going is, is <laughs> my son spent three hours in the birth canal. Okay. Three yeah. whole hours just in that little canal. Ain't nobody gotta be real gentle with him. And then they were like molding his head. And I remember yeah. my mom being uh, she was upset. They're being too rough with the baby. No, they understand that this baby is not gonna break. Because yeah. and I think, however. My husband says that the scariest moment of his life is when they put both of our twins in his arms, fresh out of my body, right? And it's like, oh my God. And so those who deal in, right? I deal in trauma and resilience. And so there are people who come to me who don't want to go there because they think that it's going to break them, kill them, to talk about it, to think about it, to address it. And I deal with it and I say, you're not going to die. You're not. Mm-hmm. I'm with mm-hmm. you. And so I think that's part of it too. Is we're precious about it because we don't deal in it, because we don't yep. address it, because we don't spend time there. And I also I am so intrigued by this idea of walking around and pointing out the dead things. Because you said that, and I'm like, legit death happens all the time. And just if I'm if I am mindfully driving, which I try to do now that. I'm traveling a little more. And what I mean by that is literally just don't zone out. And then you, next thing you know, you're at your destination, but I'm looking at what's on the side of the road. There are so many dead things, yeah, animals and plants and just cars and all these things. And if we yeah. just like literally start pointing out all the dead things, the stigma we have around it would dissipate because literally you can't go your day if you're if you stay home without encountering yeah. some kind of dead thing so I think that's phenomenal. yeah well think about like your phone like how many times in your life have, have has your laptop died or your phone died like we talk about this all the time but we treat it like it's so different I mean it is it's, it's not a person but the concept of everything dying is actually very normal we just make it very precious some of the time mm, that's some good stuff cool so mm-hmm. I am very intrigued by your third pillar that I can't even remember what you called it. So I'm not even going to botch it, but it is the intersection of plants or yeah. other living organisms, I'm assuming, yep. with death. So please tell us about that. Yeah. So several years ago, I had a uh, fellowship um, and I was interested in where plants intersect with people, intersects with death and grief. Because um, 
there's actually a whole broader thing here with um, white supremacy in general and how it has stripped all people, including white people, of your cultural traditions, of your ornamentation, of your costumes, of your rituals around death and dying. Um, it's called Thanabotany. And anyway, I ended up forming a field. It's now an emerging field. It's about three, almost four years old. It's called Thanabotany. And it is a place where we are specifically interested in understanding how people, past and present, across cultures, religions, and geography, used plants to help us deal with death, dying, grief, loss, bereavement, funerals, support, memory, remembering. Um, plants have been our besties <laughs> since day one. Plant, we've all humans have always been in relationship with plants, and the study of that relationship is called ethnobotany. Uh, thanabotany is where we're like, yes, ethnobotany, but specifically death and grief. Um, so that's that's that in a nutshell, basically. I, I mean, I love it, and, and especially for a few reasons. One, it brought up this concept that so you talk about language, language is so important. I know this. Over the last couple of weeks, we recently moved. I have been hyper aware of my language and limitations that my own language sets for me. For example, I recognize that decoratively and to fill my home, I want plants. But the narrative that has always come out of my mouth is I'm not a plant person. I can't keep them alive. They'll die with me. And I realize that my language is creating a barrier. Like, here it is. I'm doing pretty good keeping three humans alive and they have a whole lot of needs. Right. And I have to say to myself, like, um, you, you probably can do a better job than you think you can. Um, cause your kids, you're doing pretty good. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to stop using language to restrict and limit what I can do. So that's one thing that I thought of. The next thing I thought is, oh my God, the amount of flowers and plants that get given during death, bereavement, loss, just period, right? So whether it's the funeral where you're, it's tons of plants and it's almost like if you look at a famous person or a well-known person and you see their funeral, it is just like a greenhouse, right? But even yeah, someone yeah. who not have a lot of connected relationships there's still a flower that'll get placed on top of that coffin and so I do think that there is this true relationship that I don't know that I that I actually had considered consciously it's when someone dies if you were oh we're going to send flowers um or if you're close to the person who died who wants this or then when that plant from the funeral this happens in my family a lot someone will take the plant and then it's like so oftentimes that plant gets named after the person who passed away and yes. then it becomes a very earnest and intentional effort to care for that plant because that plant is auntie grandma dad uncle yes husband you know and so yeah that is that is so so fascinating yeah there's um, this week with my students in my introduction to Thanabotany course, we're talking about the daisy and I have a daisy here that I'm holding up and showing you that I picked and I pressed and I put it in resin to talk about. But so the daisy is associated with um, children, child loss, miscarriage, stillbirth. Um, it's also good for pet loss because how many people have pets that are like their children, right? I do. <laughs> I have a very close relationship with my dogs. So um, there's this tradition with daisies and how it was the, the story goes with how the daisy was created. It was created by God to remind us that there's hope, that there's there will be joy again, that there is innocence in life. And so now when I have a friend or someone I know that loses a child or miscarries or deals with stillbirth, which miscarriage and stillbirth are often disenfranchised. People people will say stuff to you that is like, well, at least it wasn't a real baby, you know, oh, stuff like that. Yes. So I will give daisies. I give them daisies and I talk about the meaning and giving the daisy flower 
let someone feel seen more deeply than just here's a bouquet of flowers that I got at Kroger, which is fine, but it can be more meaningful when, when you're like, I'm giving you the daisy because I see your loss specifically. So that's an example of one application of Thanabotany in modern day. Like how can we be better at showing up for each other? Plants, plants, plants are not offensive unless it's psychoactive. That, that offends some people, but for the most part, plants are not offensive. And as a result, they allow us to cross cultures, religions, cross, cross everything. Like they're very safe and they help us build bridges, um, which is very exciting for me. Um, another application of Thanabotany, um, a lot of my students are dealing with generational trauma and like trying to heal um, the stuff that we've inherited and try like previous generations kept putting it off. And now what are we going to do about it? Um, or people who are looking to, who are like, I know that my ancestry is this. My grandparents, it was stripped of them or they had to flee that heritage and I wanna restore it. And plants is often an, a way to access that work in a way that is personally meaningful for people. It, it makes the intangible tangible. The idea of ancestry, your genealogy, well, you can't see that, hold that, feel that. But if you know that your people have a long, long, long family tradition with basil or with whatever it might be that you uncover through your research, all of a sudden it becomes a tangible thing in your life. You can see it, you can smell it, you can touch it, you can hold it, you can cook with it. Um, and it helps bring something to life that perhaps has been dead for a long time. So good. Goodness knows I don't have time for no classes or courses, but let me tell you, I'm going to have this on my shelf of like, you know, making a priority. I, I'm so interested intrigued. And I, I think something else for me that has been emerging, I would say over the last few weeks is an awareness of how much I don't know. <laughs> Just that there is a whole world, a whole world of things out there that I have not come in contact with, I have not interacted with, I don't have access to, um, I haven't had exposure to, and uh, thanatology is one of those things in in its in a definition of it. But as we talked before we started recording, as we talked, I'm like, oh, I inter I intersect with this. Yes, Our trauma work is a form of thanatology. We yes. are we are knee deep in loss and death and yeah and grieving and all of that and so I appreciate that so much and I am very confident that this conversation that I would able to have now give some words to people like language is important and one of the things that I found in my work which yes the field but I, I will say is very kind of indicative of who I am as a person is being able to help people find, develop, or latch onto language that gives life to their internal experience. It's yeah. not that it wasn't happening, it's just that they didn't know how to articulate it. And because we're such a cognitive and verbal culture, there's yep. not a lot of space left for the groaning, the, 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 the deep guttural things that come out of us that are communication, the internal yes. body sensations that are actually communication. We're in a culture that says, if you can't put a word to it, or write it down, then it doesn't exist and that's false. And so I, yep. I do love helping people find the richness and the value in their wordless experience, but then also helping them develop words. And I feel like yep. our conversation today, there are going to be some come away with some words shadow loss shadow light or like oh my goodness yes that is it and so for that I'm so grateful Cole I feel like we could talk like a whole lot longer um and I look forward to doing that um and as <laughs> yeah. continue to emerge have you back and continue to talk but for now as we begin to wrap up you said something that was intriguing or someone is like, oh my God, I need to know more about her. I need to get in touch with her. How can people find and get in touch with you? So my website is AmericanFanatologist.com and the school's website is AmericanFanatology.com. 
<laughs> awesome. We will make sure we have those in the show notes. And I like to finish out like I do with all my guests and ask, what is an interesting, fun, or little known fact about yourself that you're willing to share? Hmm, well, something fun. Um, I am retired roller derby. I skated with a league for several years in my early 20s. And then my husband was a certified ref. My now husband was a certified referee as well. So I um, definitely processed aggression differently and anger in my early 20s. <laughs> roller derby was great for that. <laughs> wow. Did you meet your husband because through roller derby? No, we had been dating before and I was like, I want to try this. So I tried out, I made a team, I skated and did all that. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Definitely something that I, my body could only handle in my early twenties and in my thirties now, she wouldn't like it now. So it's good that we did it when we did. (laughs) Thank you. That's awesome. I really appreciate that so much. Cole, I want to thank you so much for just taking the time out to talk us um, about your world, your work, and your contributions. It's meant so much. Thank you. Well, LaShonda, thank you for having me, and thank you for allowing the space to to share my work. I really appreciate that, Um, and um, I hope you go on a walk and look at dead things, and you'll you'll never be able to see the world differently. (laughs) I I know I won't be able to see the world differently, and I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast and to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media. And of course, to you, my listeners, I never think it's granted that you tune in and listen. If you haven't already headed over to our social media, please do so. Leave us a note. Let us know how you're liking the episode. On uh, Instagram, we have a brand new page specifically for the podcast, the underscore LOL underscore pod. If you want to reach out and have suggestions for guests or content, you can reach us at www.thelaborsofluff.com. And finally, go ahead and give us that five-star rating, write a review, and share the podcast with your friends and loved ones. Until we connect again, you all be well.